as we deep dive into these chilling tales. We all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where recess mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, recess mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of foul play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. Almost 40 years, there stood a huge billboard on Route 9 near Fayetteville, West Virginia. It showed the images of five children and the following inscription. On Christmas Eve, 1945, our home was set afire, and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire, however no bones were found in the residue, and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. What was the motive of the law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? In this episode, we will be talking about the disappearance of the Sodder children. This story takes us back to November 24, 1985, in the tiny municipality of Tula, on the small island of Sardinia in the Mediterranean Sea, to the west of Italy and to the north of Tunisia. It was on this day that Giovanni and Maria Sodu welcomed their son, Giorgio, into the world. Sitting at the foot of large hills, the area was picturesque, surrounded by beautiful countryside with many of the 1,500 residents working on their land. But that wasn't enough for Giorgio. He wanted adventure. He wanted to see the world. He just wanted more. And so, at the age of 16, 
Giorgio packed his meager belongings and headed to the port of Genoa in Italy before boarding a large ship, the Verona, to start an exciting new life in the new world, the United States of America. The Verona was built by workmen, Clark and Company, in Belfast in 1908. It was 147 meters long by 17.8 meters wide, carried 60 first-class passengers, 120 second-class passengers, and around 2,000 third-class passengers, which included immigrants. And it was in this third class that Giorgio found himself. The journey was arduous, long and hot, in very cramped conditions, with very little to eat and drink, but it didn't matter, because at the end of it, there would be endless opportunities. Giorgio arrived in New York on April 1, 1911, and was processed through Ellis Island with around 1,900 passengers that day alone. His passenger arrival card described him as five foot tall with chestnut brown hair, chestnut brown eyes, and dark skin, presumably from his outdoor work as a farmer. He wrote on his arrival paperwork that he had $24 in cash, which would be around $630 today. However, we don't know how accurate that is, as knowing they had to be able to support themselves to pay rent, travel, and food bills. Many people exaggerated this figure to ensure that they were not detained. It wasn't immediately obvious to Giorgio what opportunities were open to him, but what he did know was that he needed a job. So he stayed in the Ellis Island area, working on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying supplies and water to the laborers. He settled in well. He was hardworking and was determined to make a life for himself in the new world. Like many other immigrants, he changed his name and soon became known as George Sauter. With a few years' experience under his belt, it was time for a change, and George moved to West Virginia. After initially taking a job as a driver, his entrepreneurial spirit shone through, and he ended up running his own trucking company, which specialised in hauling coal and freight. One day, George walked into a local shop called Music Box, where he met and fell in love with the owner's daughter, Jenny Ciprani. Like George, Jenny had also moved from Italy, and had arrived as a young child with her family in 1905. The couple went on to marry in 1922, moved to a large single-family home in Fayetteville in 1923, and went on to have 11 children. John Frederick, a son, born on the 15th of August 1923. Joseph Samuel, a son, born on the 4th of September 1924. Mary Ann, also known as Marion, a daughter born on the 6th of March, 1926. George Jr., a son born on the 30th of September, 1929. Morris Antonio, a son born on the 8th of July, 1931. Martina Lee, a daughter born on the 22nd of January, 1933. Louis Errico, a son born on the 30th of December, 1935. Jenny Irene, a daughter born on the 19th of September 1937. Betty Dolly, a daughter born on the 4th of March 1940. Sylvia, a daughter born on the 5th of March 1942. 
There was also another son, Michael, who was born on the 29th of December 1950, but sadly died the following day from complications related to his birth. The family were well respected in the local community of Fayetteville, which had a large Italian community. George was loud, opinionated and described as boisterous. However, he was liked, always cheerful and would happily talk to anybody about anything. They sound like the perfect family, don't they? They seem to have a wonderful life full of happiness and joy. Of course, we all want to hear that they lived happily ever after. But sadly, fairy tales are just that. It was Christmas Eve, 1945, George and Jeannie, with nine of their ten children, their son Joseph being away serving in the army. The children were excited. Marion, the eldest daughter, had come home from work that evening, bearing gifts of toys for her younger sisters. Spirits were high, and it was going to be a while before the children retired for the evening. George and two of the older boys, John and George Jr., were already asleep, resting after a hard day at work. Jeannie was also tired and needed to get Sylvia, aged two, to bed, as well as wanting to retire herself. The children begged their mother to be allowed to stay up later than normal, and as it was Christmas, she agreed, providing that Maurice, age 14, and Louis, age 9, promised to lock the door, close the curtains, and turn off the lights before they went to bed. The boys readily agreed, so Jeannie took Sylvia with her and went to the bedroom that she shared with George. Less than three hours later, Jenny was woken by the sound of the telephone ringing. She dragged herself out of bed and along the hallway wondering who could be calling at such a late hour. She picked up the telephone. Hello, she said. She could hear several people talking at once. Then she heard a female voice asking to speak to someone she had never heard of. She told them they had the wrong number, and as she went to replace the receiver, heard a strange laugh from the other end of the line. She hung up, confused and mildly annoyed that she had been woken up in the middle of the night. But then she noticed that the boys had not done what they promised. The lights downstairs were still on, the curtains were still open, and the front door was unlocked. Apart from Marion, who had fallen asleep on the sofa, nobody else was around, so she assumed they had all gone to bed. Jenny lay back in bed when she heard a loud thud on the roof, followed by what sounded like something rolling down the tiles. Tired and confused, Jenny fell asleep. Jeannie wasn't asleep long when she woke up choking. Smoke. What was happening? She woke George and grabbed Sylvia before rushing to wake Marion, John, and George Jr. The other children were asleep on the top floor, but the staircase leading up to this bedroom was engulfed in flames. There was no way to get through. Screaming, Jeannie was dragged out of the house by George, along with the four children they had managed to rescue. George returned to the house, breaking a window to gain entry, slicing skin from his own arm as he did so. But the fire had swept through the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, the office, and his and Jeannie's bedroom. He couldn't get in. George wasn't going to give up. His children were in there. 
he was going to get them out one way or another. He knew there was a ladder outside, which he could use, to reach the upstairs window. George ran to the side of the house where the ladder was kept, but it wasn't there. George was confused. The ladder was always there. Where was it? He was distraught. He had to get the children out. What else could he do? His trucks. There were two parked in the driveway. If he moved them under the window, he could climb up to the roof and reach the children from there. But despite never failing him before, neither truck would start. He knew he was running out of time to save his children. He had to act fast. His next thought was the rain barrel. Though it was likely not tall enough, he was out of options. He ran to the barrel. If he could just move it under the window and then stood on it, he might just be able to reach. The contents of the barrel were frozen, so it was too heavy for George to move. He was defeated. Whilst George was frantically trying to reach the trapped children, Marion, the eldest daughter, had run to the neighbour's house to call the fire department. But when she picked up the receiver, there was no signal. Another neighbour had seen the flames engulfing the building and the billowing smoke rising, and had also tried to call the fire department, but their line was also dead. This neighbour jumped in his car and drove into the town to find Fire Chief F.J. Morris. The fire chief jumped into action, calling one firefighter who called the next firefighter, and on and on, until the whole team were roused. Despite only being two and a half miles away from the house, the fire department did not arrive at the scene until 8am on Christmas morning, more than seven hours after the blaze had started. By then, the house was nothing more than a pile of smoking ash. The children had not been rescued. There had been no screams from them. There were no bones. They had disappeared without a trace. Chief F.J. Morris told the family that the children's bodies must have been cremated in the blaze. A state police inspector told George and Jenny that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. The children's official cause of death was recorded as, quote, fire of suffocation, end quote. What a tragedy, an electrical fire that killed five young children. Or is there more to this accident than it appeared? There were a number of strange events that happened in the lead up to the fire that may or may not be related to the event of December 25th, 1945. We will leave it up to you to decide if they were relevant to what happened or if it was just an accident and these were just coincidences. Point one. The inspector said that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. However, George had only just had the whole house rewired. And, when the new electric stove was installed recently, the local electric company had inspected the electrics and said they were safe. Point two. If the cause of the fire had been faulty electric, then surely the power would have been off. However, lights were seen on in the downstairs of the house as it burned. Point three. Where was the ladder? George said it was always left on the side of the house, yet that night it was not there. Investigators at the site, after the fire, found the ladder hidden about 30 meters down an embankment near the home. Point four. 
Why did both trucks fail to start when they had both worked perfectly earlier in the day? Was it just because it was a cold evening, or was there something more sinister going on? Point five. There were no remains. Not a single bone. Yet the fire burned for just 45 minutes. Surely not long enough or hot enough to cremate all the remains. Point six. A few months before the fire, a man visited the house asking for work. When George said he had none, the man went to the back of the house where the two fuse boxes were and allegedly said, quote, This is going to cause a fire someday. End quote. Point seven. Two months before the fire, a man visited the house trying to sell insurance. When George said he wasn't interested, the man got quite aggressive and allegedly said to George, quote, Your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke, end quote, before shouting, quote, And your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini, end quote. As we said earlier, George was quite outspoken. People who knew him said he could have a sharp tongue and had very strong political views, but he was happy to share with whomever would listen, including his resentment towards Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Point eight. Just before Christmas, two of George and Jeannie's older sons had mentioned that they had seen a strange man parked along Highway 21 who appeared to be watching younger children. Point nine. Then there were some witnesses who came forward. A bus driver said he had seen something that looked like fireballs flying onto the solder's roof just before the fire started. Could this have been what Jeannie heard as she laid in bed? A few months after the fire, when the snow had all melted, one of the youngest children found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the bushes nearby. George said it looked like a pineapple bomb and grenade. A local lady said that she had seen the five children driving past in a car as the fire raged. The proprietor of a restaurant 50 miles away said that she served the children breakfast the morning after the fire. She said that the car they drove away in had Florida plates. And then there was a lady in a hotel in Charleston who said she had seen four of the children with two women and two men of Italian descent. She said she had tried to speak to the children, but the men were hostile, and so she moved away. Point 10. The telephone company found that someone had climbed a telegraph pole and cut the phone line leading to the Sauter's house. Point 11. We have not read anything that proves that the children actually went to bed after Jeannie and Sylvia left the room. It is possible that they left the house before the fire. Point 12. We don't know why George left Italy in the first place. Was there something in his background that is relevant? So, what happened next? George and Jenny just couldn't accept that it was an accident. They also didn't believe that their children were in the house when it caught fire. Surely there would be some sign that they were there. Jenny would burn chicken bones in the oven to see if they would have burnt to ash after 45 minutes. They didn't. George searched out stories of other fires where remains were found. 
he said there were always some remains. There were, in fact, almost always full skeletons found in the ashes. He couldn't accept that there would be none at all if five children had perished in the fire. One day, George saw a photograph of some young girls lined up in a ballet class in a magazine and believed one of them to be Betty, so he travelled to New York to try and find her. He sent the following letter to the school. Whitmore School, 25 East 78th Street, New York. Attention, Miss Louise Kruger, Director. Dear Miss Kruger, the enclosed picture of several of your students appearing in the May 14th 1946 edition of Look magazine is self-explanatory. For your information, the little girl to which the arrow points quite definitely resembles one of our children who disappeared during the latter part of 1945, and I shall appreciate it greatly if you will, at your earliest convenience, favour me with the following information. 1. Her name. 2. The date of her enrolment. 3. Any further information you feel at liberty to supply. Needless to say, your cooperation in this matter will be more than appreciated. Yours very truly, George Sodder. It is not clear if George ever received a reply to his letter, but we do know that he didn't get to meet the girl, and it is believed that the school were able to confirm that the girl was in fact not Betty. So what had happened to their children? The couple went back to the police and demanded that further investigations were carried out. They approached the FBI and asked them for help, but received a reply from J. Edgar Hoover, stating that the case was outside of their jurisdiction and that they could only assist if the local authorities invited them. The local police and fire departments refused to let the FBI in, saying that there was no evidence to suggest the children were not inside the building. George and Jeannie were not giving up. They hired a private investigator, C.C. Tinsley, who came back with two pieces of information. First, that the insurance salesman who had visited the Sauter House in the fall of 1945 then served as a member of the coroner's jury that declared the fire an accident. And secondly, after speaking to a local minister, he discovered that the fire chief Morris had allegedly buried a heart at the scene of the fire in a small box, hoping that if it was found, the family would accept that it was proof that the children had died in the fire. Tinsley had the box dug up and found a cow's liver that showed no signs of fire damage. On Sunday, November 14, 1948, the Charleston Gazette posted an article written by John G. Morgan that said, At about 1.30 a.m., Miss Sauter was awakened by the smell of smoke. She aroused her husband and went into the adjacent room to investigate. She was met by a sheet of flame descending from one corner of the ceiling. The blazing smoke engulfed the telephone so that it was impossible for her to reach it. Terrified, she screamed for everyone to leave the house. The elder daughter heard her, rushed into the parents' bedroom, and took the baby from the cradle there and escaped through the front door. Two of the boys upstairs heard also, but in the excitement they were unable to awaken their brothers or sisters, or even to learn whether anyone remained in the room. They could only stumble through the darkness of the stairway and flee downward and outside to safety. The flame scorched their ears and eyebrows. Mr. and Miss Sauter escaped by going through the kitchen 
and out another door. Mr. Soder somehow cut a deep gash in his wrist and suffered from loss of blood. Outside they shouted again and again to attract the attention of the children they believed to still be within. Almost four years after the fire, in late summer of 1949, George and Jenny hired a pathologist, Oscar B. Hunter, to look again at the scene. Dr. Hunter was very well respected and later became the president of the College of American Pathologists in the 1960s. One of George and Jenny's granddaughters, the daughter of Sylvia, posted the following on Web Sleuths on the 15th of August 2006. Quote, Dr. Hunter was present and supervised the evacuation of the house site. My mother recalls that the evacuation was a very careful process. She remembers that they had prepared sieves to sort through the material when it was excavated, and Dr. Hunter said it would not be necessary. He said that they would find large groups of bones if the children were present, because their bones would not incinerate at the temperature of a house fire. Still, the evacuation was a lengthy process. The report indicated that a few human bones were found, and that they were small bones rather than the large bones that were expected. My mom recalls it was believed that the few bones were brought in with the fill material. If she finds anything more on that topic, we will keep you posted. This leads to an obvious avenue. Do the bones still exist? And can the DNA be conducted? We don't know what happened to the bones after the examination, although mum thinks they went to the Smithsonian Institute. We will try to determine whether the bones still exist at the Smithsonian. End quote. She also posted the report that the family received from Dr. Hunter, which reads, Received August 19, 1949. Reported August 25, 1949. Report of examination of bones. The following description is that relative to bones found in the excavations of the home of Mr. George Sodder near Fayetteville, West Virginia, which was destroyed by fire on December 25, 1945. In the excavation, bones were found in the northwest corner of the basement and in the southwest corner of the basement. In the northeast corner, eight fragments of bone were found. All of these were cut in sections and have all the aspects and appearance of a thoracic vertebrae of animals, together with a few ribs and one femur. In the southeast corner of the house, six bones were found, two of which are fragments. These two fragments are fragile long bones, which have the aspects of a chicken's femur. In this same location, however, there were four bones, which are definitely identified as human bones. These four consist of lumbar vertebrae. They all belong to the same individual and their articulations fit precisely one with the other. These four vertebrae are discoloured by the earth and adjacent metallic substances. They show no evidence of charring, however, except perhaps for deposition of charred material on the surface of the bones. The bones themselves, however, show no evidence of having been burned. The uppermost vertebrae and the second vertebrae show some chipping of the dorsal spine and lateral processes. Conclusions 
From studying these bones, it can be unequivocally stated that these bones are identical with known human bones of the age group 14 to 15 years, and it is probable, with room for very little doubt, they belong to a child of this age. The bones show no evidence of actual charring, which would indicate that they were not free within the fire and subject to high temperature. They, of course, could have been in the fire covered by flesh and consequently insulated from the higher temperatures associated with the fire. The question immediately arises as to why these bones should be found without the associated bones of the remaining portions of the skeleton, and consequently it would lead one to believe that the remaining portions of the skeleton necessitates the conclusion that they were forcibly removed from the remaining portion of the skeleton. Such a forcible dismemberment during life or even after a body has been subject to fire of the intensity described would necessitate a considerable amount of force and dexterity of the part of an individual planning such a dismemberment. It would seem more reasonable that the remaining bones had been removed from the skeleton subsequent to the death of the individual at a time when the interlacing ligaments and fibrous tissues had undergone degeneration. This feature, therefore, suggests that these bones were separate from the remaining portion of the skeleton at some later time and that perhaps these bones were overlooked at the time of the removal. Reported Oscar B. Hunter, Jr., M.D., pathologist. George and Jeannie believe that their children have been kidnapped and that the fire had been started deliberately. This is when they erected this billboard, next to the site where the house had stood. It showed pictures of the children with their raven black hair and doe eyes. The paragraph underneath explained what happened and offered a reward of 5000 around $75,000 today, which was later increased to 10000 or $150,000 today. They received lots of sightings once the billboard went up. It also led to new rumors, including... The children were taken to Italy, the children were sold to an orphanage, or that the mafia was somehow involved with what happened. George traveled the country following up on leads, never losing hope of finding his missing children. They just could not accept that this was an accident, and that their children had perished. George and Jeannie created a large memorial garden for their children in the place where their home once stood, building a new home on a different part of the plot. In 1968, 23 years after the fire, Jeannie received a letter in the mail one day, postmarked Kentucky. Inside the envelope was a photograph of a young man with dark curly hair and dark eyes, wearing a white shirt and white pants, sitting in front of a casement window. Jeannie turned the photograph over, and on the back, it read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A9013 or possibly A90135, from a posting on WebSleuths by someone called Granddaughter in early 2006. She posted, 1. Mom doesn't have the original photo. She only has a copy, so the quality is not terrific. The original was much clearer. She recalls seeing casement windows in the background of the photo. And 2. She recalls the handwriting on the back of the photo differently than what was in the brag book. Since she doesn't have the original, she can't confirm this. She recalls the first two lines, 
the same as reported, which was, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie. But the last two lines, as little boys, they always thought it meant slang for little boys, age 32 or age 35, not A90312 or A90135. Jeannie was convinced this was Louis, as well as the same dark, curly hair and dark eyes. The man had the same nose and the same unusual arch to his eyebrows. The young man staring back at her is just how she imagined her son would look now. She turned over the envelope, but there was no return address. There have been lots of questions as to why only Jeannie's name was on the envelope. One theory is that the house they lived in was in her name only. So if someone tried to find them through public records, George's name would not have appeared. Was this just a cruel hoax, or had they found one of their missing children? George and Jeannie hired another private investigator, who eagerly took the fee and headed to Kentucky to see what he could find out. The private investigator was never seen or heard from again. George and Jeannie updated the billboard to add the new picture of Lewis, but it didn't lead to any new evidence coming forward. Jenny would have another shock in the same year when her husband George passed away following a short illness, leaving her all alone to continue to try to find out what happened. After George's death, Jenny built a fence around their home and then had numerous rooms added throughout the years. Nobody knows why. Maybe it was to create a barrier between herself and the outside world. Despite no new leads or evidence, Jenny continued to search for her children and tended their memorial every day. Jenny wore black from the day of the fire until her death more than four decades later. Once Jenny passed away in 1989, the billboard came down. Joseph, Marion, George Jr. and Sylvia all went on to have long and seemingly happy lives. George Jr. became president of the family business, Sodder Trucking Company. He married Elsie and became a licensed pilot before passing away aged 83. Sylvia Sodder, the youngest member of the Sodder family, passed away aged 79 on the 21st of April 2021 without knowing the truth about what happened to her siblings, Martha, Louis, Betty, Morris and Jenny. Will we ever know what happened on that fateful Christmas day in 1945? What do you think? Was it just a tragic accident? Or was there foul play involved? If you do have any information about this case, you can contact us through our website, itsfoulplay.com.